Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today our guest is Sarah Wiseman, and I'm really excited to speak with you. Sarah, Scott Givens put us in touch. We worked with Five Currents on a few projects, primarily Olympic bids in Rio, Istanbul, and uh, Beijing. And uh, so I'm really happy to, to connect with you and have you on the podcast today. It's an honor to have you. So thank you for joining. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, Christian. Thank you for having me. This is, this is awesome. Well, thank you. The, the pleasure is mine. Um, before we dive into the memories of Salt Lake 2002, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days? Well, these days, um, I'm actually working for Scott Givens <laughs> again. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been working with Five Currents now uh, since 2016. And um, we've done some wonderful, you know, I mean, it's, it's a it's a great company. It's a very dynamic. Um, uh, it's been a very dynamic, interesting year. That's for sure for everyone. But um, we've had some great um, opportunities in Indonesia and in the Middle East and in China. Um, so that's been exciting until we got to uh, March of this year <laughs> when everything sort of went on hold. So. I was in Dubai, actually. Uh, I was in China in the fall, and then I was in Dubai uh, planning to be there for a year and a half. And come March, we started to work from our hotel rooms. And, you know, when the we were working at Expo uh, 2020, uh, and when that got delayed, we slowly started to send folks home. And I went home at the end of April. So I've been home since May, basically. Wow. So it's been an interesting, it's been a very interesting six, seven months now. It's crazy. Yeah, it certainly has for all of us in this event space. A few weeks ago, we talked with one of your colleagues, Amy Murray, who was also there in Dubai, also struggling, you know, coming to terms with what COVID is doing with our with our industry. Looks like you're sitting at home with a beautiful bookshelf behind you. Um, <laughs> is work still busy or or has COVID really taken a chunk, a big bite out of things? Well, I actually, it's been uh, getting busier. Um, I would say, you know, we spent really April, May, June, sort of wrapping up um, or putting to bed what we need, what we need to do for Expo, and sort of put it on hold. Um, and that is starting to come, starting to be a little more active now. And then obviously we're very much in, uh, and the couple active projects that were delayed, but we're starting to do some work on them. Plus the nonstop tendering for new work. So, um, it's actually been very, I've been almost full time now for about a month, um, which has been a nice change. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been an interesting time, I think for everyone. Absolutely. It's been super interesting. And I'm glad to hear that the trajectory is back on the way up uh, for or five currents. And I wish you all the best of success with all the proposals <laughs> you're writing and all the work that you're continuing to doing in funky ways, you know, remotely and all this kind of stuff. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about Salt Lake? Okay. You know, that's the reason we have this podcast. Exactly. So we'll talk about Salt Lake 2002. And it's fun to look back at those times 20 years later the memories do fade. I find myself having uh, lapses in memory on, <laughs> on things that happened back then. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is so that we can we can capture these things before we forget everything. But before Salt Lake City, let's go. Let's start there. You know, when you were doing whatever you were doing, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your life was like before the games, what you were doing and then how you found your way to Salt Lake City? Well, I. um I was at uh, Walt Disney Imagineering, and um, actually, that's not true. Um, sorry, I was at Disneyland. So I was working for the Disney company as a senior producer um, and uh, doing shows um, at Disneyland as well as some other shows that we were doing internationally. 
Um, so I was traveling quite a bit, but also doing really concentrating on some of the anniversaries for Disney, um, where we did a lot of the big shows. So, yeah, and I'd been there for probably 10 years at that time. And uh, so it's an interesting, um, very interesting history with Scott and I. We actually go back to the 80s when I was working for Bob Yanni Productions. And we were doing a show in Singapore. We're doing the National Day of Singapore for uh, two different shows for Singapore. This is back in 1990. Um, so we were working on it, 88 to 89. And um, it was a big stadium show, uh, which happened every August. And it's the first time they actually had internationals involved with um, doing their National Day. And we needed a huge card stunt. We wanted to do a 5,000 strong card stunt. And we wanted to be groundbreaking. And the person that got recommended to us that, you know, could put something like that, sort of an animated card stunt together was Scott Givens. So we called Scott and I started working with Scott back then and it was actually his first job, his first big job. Um, so I gave him his first job, as he often says to me. So, um, but we did the most, he, you know, he pulled off uh, the most complicated card stunt probably in history and it's still i think it still would be um you know, now we have technology and all those things we add to seats but this was old style card stunt but we did it in such a way that we actually made birds fly through the card stunt we made um we had 5,000 12 to 16 year olds and um I, it was funny because i was actually with a military a group on the opposite side of the stadium and we had you know i'll see one two three four to ten and then with the alphabet the whole alphabet so i had 26 guys doing the whole alphabet and then i went to the ten and i as i called the cues they would flip up the cards to say we're on cue you know b16 or b9 whatever and then on each each card book if you had a b9 you would turn the page and it was all done in sequence. So we actually, Scott designed it so there could be birds flying through it or buildings growing up in the card stunt or things coming to life and, and you know, um, dissolving into another look. Anyway, it was Scott's very first job and it was, it was pretty awesome. Um, so we've known each other since, uh, since the 80s. So skip forward you know, I don't know, 13, 14 years. And we're getting to about 2000, 1999, I think 2000. And Scott had been uh, uh, promoted to director of ceremonies. And I had, you know, I kept in touch with Scott this whole time. We'd meet about once a year and say hi. And, um, and then he was promoted to overall creative, you know, in charge of all, which just look at the games, ceremonies, you know, brought all of it. So, um, he caught, I was on a, I was actually on a, uh, site trip for Disney up in, uh, Portland. And I was in a van with five other colleagues from Disney and I get this phone call and I answer the call and I go, and he goes, Hey Sarah, this is Scott. And I said, Hey Scott, how are you doing? He says, great. Hey, listen, I just got promoted. And I want you to come and be the director of ceremonies for Salt Lake, for the Olympics. Out of the blue. And I'm like, uh, hey, Scott, can I, call, can I call you back? Because I couldn't talk in the car. You know, it's not appropriate. I was a pretty established, you know, uh, senior producer for Disney. So and it was with a lot of colleagues I work with all the time. So I was like, hey, can I call you back? So anyway, we, we continued discussions and, um, I actually went to my, uh, at the time VP and I said, look, I have this opportunity. And he said, oh my God, you have to go for it. And I said, I, that's what I think so too. I mean, this doesn't, you know, happen. So I left Disney, um, and came to Salt Lake and that's really, um, 
you know, it was a big move for me. And I had a young child at the time who was in, you know, kindergarten. Um, but Salt Lake's not that far away. And so it, it was, you know, it was something I just had to do. So it was the best decision. This is a fascinating story, Sarah. Uh, it's, it's really, really cool. I'm wondering if you can give us an idea when this happened. So when was it that Scott called you, made you this offer? And when was it that you actually decided, okay, I'm going to go to Slock and you uh, came to Salt Lake? Uh, I believe, I'm trying to remember the timing of this. So I started with Slock, I believe in March 2000. Let me think, 2000. Uh, you know, it's so funny. I, I, it's hard to remember exactly, but I believe that I started pretty early in March cause I was there for two, two some years. Um, and it happened pretty quickly. You know, I had to give Disney two weeks notice. Um, he needed someone right away. Um, and so, you know, I basically, you know, it basically gave notice and moved up to Salt Lake and found a place to live and, and, uh, and started my first day at Slock was a pretty, pretty crazy day. Scotch said, look, we're meeting with the mayor. Can you just come along with me? And it was 7am in the morning, which, you know, in Salt Lake, everyone, everything started early. So at 7am, you know, all dressed up, we went to the mayor's office. I had no idea what to expect. It was my very first day. And it was very intense because we actually met with the mayor and then we met with his whole team and Scott did a presentation and they asked me a bunch of questions. I had no idea. I, I almost didn't have an idea exactly what I knew what my role was, but I didn't know all the details um, of anything that had come before. So it was a crazy, pretty crazy first day. Well, before we get into the work, yeah. why don't we get into initial impressions of Salt Lake? I mean, that's a little bit different. It's close distance wise to Southern California, but culturally, I mean, there's certainly some differences there. So <laughs> uh, what was like, what was that like, you know, transitioning from a Southern California environment coming up into the mountains? Um, I actually loved it. Um, my first impression was that nature was so close. I just got this impression that in 10 minutes I could be in some of the most beautiful mountains in the world. Um, I do remember uh, one of the issues was how dry it was. So I, I got nosebleeds for the first about six months that I lived there. I would get these nosebleeds out of no, out of nowhere. Um, and that was odd. Also, the swamp cooler, whatever, the, the swamp cooler you had to have in your house in order to add moisture back into the house was a new thing for me. Um, but I loved it. And I also was surprised, I think, how generous everyone was there and how family friendly and I see that in a really positive way because, you know, my son was at the time five or six and we, you know, it was it literally within five minutes drive of my house, there were these amazing, I don't know what you call them, almost community centers where you paid like three or $4 and they had multiple pools, they had soccer courts, they had, I mean, it was, you know, climbing things. Um, we spent, in fact, my son for years and years after we left, left Salt Lake, he says, why isn't some of these in LA? Because it was such a wonderful place just to go spend a day, you know, and do whatever. I mean, these, these places had such amazing facilities. It was great. So was that a transition that was okay for him? I mean, he's coming at, what would you say, like kindergarten or something like that? Yeah, the, kindergarten, the, yeah. Um, yeah. Was it hard to leave friends behind or was he like, all right, you know, this is fine. Let's, let's, it's a new experience. It's fun. Let's go try well, something. He actually new. never, he never moved up here for, the, he moved up for the summers. And then we, I went back and forth and they would come up and I would go down. And um, so, because he was in the middle of, you know, he loved his school. So we never actually moved him to Salt Lake. So it was really more like a vacation. Every time he'd come, it was like a vacation. 
So he did come and spend two summers in Salt Lake, which he loved. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, coming back to the work piece, director of ceremonies. That's a big job. That's a big role. <laughs> you get here at seven o'clock in the morning, first day of work, you're going to see in the mayor. <laughs> so tell us a little bit what that's like, you know, being the director of ceremonies in an Olympic Games. And what were some of the skills that you brought with you before you had worked for SLOC that really helped you to deliver here in Salt Lake? Um, I think that the most important thing was, um, uh, well, obviously a lot of production experience, but also I think some good people skills. Um, and the one thing about doing Olympics is that, you know, you have a sort of core team and that team sort of starts exploding quickly as you get closer and closer to the game. So you have to hire people that you have trust and that, you know, and you have to delegate well and, you know, be able to get the job done without a lot of <laughs> drama because the pressure is so extraordinary. And I think it's, um, I think it can get overwhelming. So being calm and, and straightforward and, you know, I, I found everyone at Slock that there were very few games being played. There was very straightforward. It was very um, direct. People were honest. They, they, everyone was in the same, I mean, it was really an amazing experience and that everyone was really rowing in the same direction. And, and Mitt Romney was really the one who sort of set that tone. Um, and it was really um, beneficial for all of us, you know, who, who came, we all came from such different backgrounds and to come together and coalesce into a group that could actually succeed, I think is um, an art on Mitt's part. Um, and Scott definitely created that in, in our group where all of us were working together and we would laugh and we would have fun at the same time. But the pressure was, um, it was pretty, it was pretty extraordinary. It was like, like stepping into a fast lane from being sort of a steady, you know, I'd done a lot of shows around the world and I, you know, I, you know, had time to do them. This was get it done now and move on, you know? So, um, it was a, it was a different experience. Well, there's certainly a time pressure because the deadlines are immovable. The games will happen when they happen and you can't tell the IOC, well, can we postpone it for a few months until we get our <laughs> ceremonies together? So there's certainly that kind of pressure. There's also pressure in Olympic games with the innovation in the ceremonies and mm -hmm. trying to do something that's really outstanding that represents the culture and also showcases the event. So when you and Scott were kind of scheming in the background what are we going to do to make this show really pop you know what were some of the what were some of the interesting ideas or innovations that you came up with and were there any any of these really interesting ideas that ended up not being implemented for one reason or another well i wish i i, put, I have to put my memory hat because it's so hard to remember because i know we had lots of uh we actually ended up doing a lot of the things that we dreamed um you know, I think the opening ceremonies being on an ice rink in a stadium um, was unique. And I think it was so much driven on uh, the desire to have movement and to have sort of speed of, of movement on the field. Um, but it was definitely, <laughs> it was a little, it was a little frightening when it started to get a little warmer, uh, uh, like when we started to install the ice rink and it started getting warmer, it was very uh, nerve wracking to tell the truth. Um, and also the snow was a challenge because we had a few situations where it was it, it snowed and just clearing the snow to have rehearsals, clearing, you know, um, it was, you know, everything because you're outside, the ceremony was outside. Um, you know, you were very much open to the elements. So, um, I think there are a couple of things that we planned to do in the opening ceremonies that we ended up doing in the closing ceremonies because of the wind. Um, so there were a couple of things that we ended up sort of not using because it was windy. Um, 
or other elements. And we just said, okay, how do we put that into the closing ceremony? And that happened in the last, literally as the Olympics were going on. Um, tell me about this. So five currents is a production company organizing committees will hire or outsource a lot of production to a company like five currents to do right. a lot of work in the ceremonies. And at the same time, they also have kind of their core staff in the organizing committee. What was the situation there in Salt Lake? And if there was an outside production company, how did you manage the relationship between the organizing committee and then the production company? Yes, we did. We had um, we hired Don Misher to produce the actual ceremonies. Um, it was a very, I mean, it was a very um, David and Jeff who were their their uh, primary producers were were awesome. Um, and we spent almost every day with um, both Scott and I. So um, I think it's, you know, I think it is steering to make sure we were on the right track. So there was a constant conversation about, because, you know, 9-11 happened, before, you know, months before the, the Olympics. So that really caused us to step back and, you know, we were way into production by the time 9-11 happened, you know, it was September, the ceremonies were in February. So, you know, in the middle of production to step back and say, are we doing the right thing? Is, is there anything that we would change now? Um, and, you know, for a while, you know, are the Olympics going to go forward? Are we going to have the Olympics? So, you know, what does that planning look like if we were to postpone or if, you know, delay or any of that? So a lot of those conversations were being had um, during that time. So I think um, as far as technologies, you know, we, you know, we were doing a lot of, you know, sort of groundbreaking things on puppets um, some wonderful sort of projection puppet things. Um, and also the ice and, and fire and ice and all that stuff. And obviously the cauldron was, was unique in that way. Um, but, uh, you know, we also had to be careful, very careful that we, because of the elements, um, you know, that we were smart and we weren't putting the show at risk because, you know, you have one chance, that's it. <laughs> with the ceremonies. So you have to make sure, make sure that everything works. Absolutely right. We've seen that in a couple of ceremonies where something hasn't functioned quite properly. <laughs> and that, you know, those kinds of things happen. But I want well, to come back have, to 9 11. You, yeah. Sorry. You know, no, sorry. Uh, I want to come back to the 9 11 thing. You know, uh, a lot of people that we've had on this podcast have talked about the flag coming out as a really impactful memory for them of the games. A lot of people have mentioned that. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about how that all came about. You know, I don't, to tell you honestly, I don't remember because it, there was a lot of discussions happening at MIT's level um, on how, and it wasn't, you know, it was really more discussion happening between president's office, I believe, and met on how this would be represented. This was such an extraordinary time and such an extraordinary moment to be celebrated. So I think for us on the working side, um, you know, this was more, we were more dealing with, you know, the flag moment was really something that was, um, for, for me anyway, the discussion happening at a much higher level. Um, we were more dealing with, you know, are we going to, how are we going to deal with security? How are we going to deal with, you know, the pieces that we had in place? Were they the right pieces? Do we have to tweak those in order to make it appropriate um, for the time? Um, the flag moment, I believe, was a, a pretty last minute decision um, because by the time we it was determined we were moving forward with the Olympics, um, I think it was a, you know, and I'm saying this not as a, a active participant in that decision, honestly. Um, so I'm being, I'm being very honest here. Um, but I think it was a very last minute decision to have the flag brought out to Salt Lake. All right. Now I'm going to let you come on your earlier thought, cause I interrupted you and I apologize. Um, well, we were talking about the 
potential for things to go wrong in the yeah. ceremonies. So and <laughs> you're going to elaborate on something. So tell us, uh, Sarah, a little bit more about potential for things to go wrong in the ceremonies. Well, I mean, I think, as you mentioned, there have been there has been a number of ceremonies uh, through the years that have had issues with the cauldron. And um, that can be, you know, honestly, that can be one of the key things that when people look back on a ceremony, they think, you know, ugh, all I can remember is that the, it didn't light or it didn't whatever. So one thing that's interesting is the amount of redundancies that there are for the cauldron lighting. And we have those in Salt Lake. I'm not going to go into the details of that because, you know, I think they're quite secret. But, um, you know, to make sure that. Um, you know, that we had a successful lighting of the cauldron because that was the last thing we wanted. You know, it's, it's, it's such a key moment. So it was, uh, you know, and we had a live orchestra and we had a live, you know, choir, obviously with the, with the uh, Salt Lake a tabernacle. And so it was, it was, um, it was pretty key. So, yeah. <laughs> Now, you mentioned something really interesting there, Sarah, which is, you know, you didn't want to get into the details because those were sacred. And I totally understand that. And that actually brings me to a question for you, which is about keeping secrets, right? A lot of people want to know how who's lighting the torch or who's lighting the cauldron, excuse yeah. me. And they want to know who the performers are going to be at the ceremonies and things like that. And you've got to keep all that under wraps. You know, what is it like having to make sure that all of that is airtight and it doesn't get leaked out? Well, first of all, the fewer people that know, the better. So I think there were literally Don Misher, David, Jeff, myself, and Scott and Mitt were the only ones that knew who was going to light the cauldron. We kept it a very small circle. Um, there may be a few others, but it was it, the the whole point is that you absolutely. You know, in no discussion could anything, you know, be had, whether it was multiples or single or anything. People read into everything. So, yeah, it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to keep. Um, you know, it's it's one of the things with every ceremonies, you know, they want to do. You have to keep that secret, you know, so it's a surprise on the night of the broadcast. I want to come back to another thing about ceremonies you mentioned briefly. It's the cast. What's it like trying to recruit and select thousands and thousands of cast members to participate in an Olympic opening ceremony? Well, I think the fact we're in Salt Lake, the fact that, you know, in Utah, in general, in Salt Lake, um, volunteering, um, participating in all kinds of um you know, wonderful sort of service oriented things. It's very, it's, it's a norm. It's a complete norm. Learning another language is a complete norm in Salt Lake. So I have to say our job was easy. It was easy. Um, of all, you know, of all the stories I've heard from other ceremonies, you know, that is, a, is tricky. I mean, I think performing in Olympics is a positive anywhere in the world. But in Salt Lake, we had far more people audition than we had roles for, you know, honestly. Um, and not only, and incredible formers, you know, incredible formers. The, the, we had this band that we put together for not only the ceremonies, but they performed all throughout the, the um, uh, you know, 14 days and, or 17 days, sorry. Um, and it was, you know, they were just amazing. I mean, you know, made, made up of so many of the universities that were there, all volunteering, all like amazing, you know, musicians. Um, There's so many. I mean, it, the you're right. It's thousands and thousands of performers. And, you know, uniquely, you need to treat them well. You need to make sure their basic basic needs are taken care of, transportation, you know, um, bathrooms, feeding them. All of that is is all really positive. So it's a real positive, you know, um, experience for all of them. Um, but in Salt Lake, it was not it was not hard. It was not hard. People were very generous, and they jumped at the chance. 
We've talked a lot about uh, ceremonies, looking at it from an opening ceremony perspective, because that gets all the attention. It's the one that really kicks off the games. It's the most watched. But there are other ceremonies uh, as well. And we've had several people talk very, very positively about the closing ceremonies of the games. Yeah. It was just a huge party. It was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> they love the musical acts. We get a lot of people talking about Kiss and Bon Jovi and these guys. <laughs> so what can you tell me about putting together the closing ceremony of the games and really making it such a party atmosphere? So it's interesting. So closing ceremonies tend to, uh, they tend to be the afterthought. Um, so much of the the work that you do in a, in a ceremonies, the opening ceremonies usually takes 90% of the work. Um, you know, you want to set the right tone. You want to, all the stakeholders, it's, it's the first step in an Olympic games. It sort of sets the tone and, and uh, excitement of the games. Whereas the closing ceremonies is really the celebration. So it's actually far easier Um you really need to set a sort of celebration of um, not only the games, but also all these athletes that have come, thousands and thousands of athletes that have come. And it's really the, their celebration and the city's celebration that we did it, you know, that we, 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 and especially this Olympics, you know, because of 9-11, I think not only the U.S., but the world was sort of celebrating a successful games. So uh, I think, you know, it's so funny. We had a conversation with Mitt and he said, you know, we've got to have a great accent and the closing ceremonies. And there was discussion about, um, you know, you know, the Wasatch mountain rains, which is so beautiful. That's set right behind the stadium. We hadn't really, we'd put rings up there, but we hadn't really used them um, to a degree. And we brainstormed and we said, what if we put, like 24 inch shells up, you know, fireworks, these unique fireworks up on that mountain range and lit up the whole mountain range. And, you know, at the time when we were dreaming this up, it was, you know, it was actually before nine. Well, it was sort of before nine 11 and it was before financially games were in good shape and we were like, well, we can't really, you know, these are going to, these are from Japan. They're, you know, they come with a priest that blasts the bless this 24 inch is these shells. And, you know, you have to have armies that, you know, literally army helicopters to get them up there because they're dangerous. And anyway, there was a lot of logistics. And Mint said, tell me what it's going to cost. I'll make it happen. And we'll make it when, when's the last minute I can make the decision. And so we gave him a deadline and he's, and we have a price. And then when the deadline came, he said, he decided let's go for it. And that was after nine 11, when the decision was made to move forward is he said, go for it. So, you know, that was one of the unique things that happened for that closing ceremonies too, was just the light up the mountains and, and just to make an amazing uh, finale for the, for the, for the games. Well, I went to the closing ceremonies and I was sitting on the wrong side of the stadium. Oh, see? <laughs> I see all that. And now you're telling me about it. And I'm like, I need to go pull this back up on YouTube or something so that I can find this. Well, yeah, I know. All the cameras were on the right side. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no, you don't need to apologize. Uh, you didn't sell me the ticket or anything. <laughs> so it's absolutely no worries. But that's a super interesting story. It's really interesting. And as you say that the... Uh, that the closing ceremonies may be a bit of an afterthought. Well, there are also Paralympic games to consider yes. as well. Yes. So uh, what was that like preparing uh, and delivering uh, ceremonies for the Paralympic games? Um, well, you know, Paralympic games are, are special. I mean, honestly, they, you know, they have a special meaning, I think for everyone. And, and the, the interesting thing is, you know, you sort of come off this, this sort of energy of putting the Olympics together and everyone knows we're having the Paralympics together and you, and you do pare down, you know, the staff and everything for the Paralympics, but you have to then motivate everyone, you know, which isn't hard, but it, it takes some motivation to get their energy back up because, you know, putting on an Olympics and a Paralympics games in sequence 
is an enormous effort. And you emotionally, um, I think, are drained after the Olympics. So it's, it's actually quite good that it's not like right after that you have a little time to sort of take a breath and then start to ramp back up for the Paralympic games. Well, one of my favorite memories of the Paralympic games was the opening ceremony. Stevie wonder going out there <laughs> and killing it in a driving rain. Exactly. I, 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 I sat out there in that rain and I enjoyed it. I mean, he, it was cold. <laughs> he brought it. I was really impressed with uh, Stevie bringing it there. Yeah. Uh, and those musical acts, I think, uh, leave an impression. I remember from the opening ceremony, this uh, Sting and Yo-Yo Ma uh, rendition of Fragile. Um, yeah. For me, that was really impactful. And so many great, uh, incredible memories from those ceremonies. But these games, they come to an end. And yeah. people move on with their lives. And yeah. so when the games end, what's life like for you, Sarah, where do you go next? Well, I really, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, I kept working for slog, I think through all, you know, we do all the close out all of that till August. Um, and then I decided I needed, I, there's no, I didn't have the energy, honestly, the energy to go right back so I took three months off. Um, and you know, my son was then seven and we drove across country and we visited family. And then we went to Europe and I've, cause I have a lot of family in England and we drove across Europe. Just my, we met my, my, my husband was working. So he would meet us at certain points. And I remember driving from London, taking the channel and we drove just my seven-year-old and me, we drove all the way to Venice and we had some most amazing experiences driving through the mountains. I have very, one very funny story where we're driving through the mountains and you can imagine a seven-year-old, he's sitting in the back and um, the most beautiful rainbow happened. And I was right, we're my, right by Mont Blanc and it was a beautiful sort of summer day. And I'm looking and I'm seeing the rainbow and I'm saying, Liam, look at this rainbow. It's amazing. And all he's doing in the back is, mom, mom, I can't look up. I'm playing a game. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, I am driving in the most beautiful place in the world with a seven-year-old who doesn't even want to look up from his video game and look out the window. I mean, he did in the end, but it was just, oh, it was so frustrating. It was like, look around you. It's amazing. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, Mont Blanc is one of the most impressive mountains. Oh, uh, it's incredible. The, the, the amount of snow and glaciers on that mountains is crazy. Yeah. And that drive is beautiful. If you head out from Geneva and then go up. Exactly. Uh, exactly. It was into the, uh, Aosta Valley and then down into Milan or. Yeah, uh, exactly. Turkey. Exactly. Um, how we went. Absolutely. A beautiful, beautiful drive. So, yeah. All right. So you go for three months on vacation. you you drive from the UK down to Venice and it sounds amazing. <laughs> And then what happens? Well, then I got a call from I got a call from Disney actually um, because they were ramping up for their fiftieth, so which was in two thousand and five. Um, so I went back as a consultant for Disney actually, and it was interesting is uh, the VP at the time, um, who, you know, I've, I've known for a long time. He decided to leave the company. And who should take his spot? Scott Dimmons. <laughs> so I was already on as a consultant. So I started working with Scott again and we worked on the 50th. Um, Scott was only there for probably two years or something. Um, and as I was working on the 50th, um, I started to have conversations with Imagineering because they were consolidating all the entertainment, the management of entertainment worldwide into Imagineering, which was a very new thing because before all entertainment was very localized. So Disneyland had their entertainment group, Walt Disney world, you know, Paris, all that. So Imagineering was developing a group that was globally responsible for entertainment. So I was started talking to them and after the 50th, um, they hired me. So you know, so I became director of production um, at Imagineering under, for the enter live entertainment group. Well, 
last question on this before we get to our final segment, unless you've got any other stories to share. <laughs> what did the experience in Salt Lake teach you? What did you learn from there that you were able to then apply in the work that you were doing with Disney or the future work? You know, Salt Lake for me is such a uh, memorable time in my life, honestly. Um, you know, it was um, great com camaraderie with the whole group. It was a very, for, for me, it was very positive the whole time, honestly. Stressful, but very positive. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, it was, it was also meeting... I think one thing about when you work for Disney, um, it becomes very insular very quickly. It, it's just interesting. I know if you've had that experience where if you're working for a big company like Disney you and you've been there a number of years, you know, you start sort of relying on that whole um, support system that's there, right? And one of my impressions when I stepped out of that and went to Salt Lake is that, you know what? we're, we've got to do it all. You know, there isn't the support system. You had to, one, you had to create the support system. And two, we did whatever it took to get the job done. Um, and I think that's one of the big things, um, that, you know, stepping away and working on the Olympics was such a eye opener for me and such a, you know, I think very much sort of fit my personality, but I, I'd love that sort of sense of, we have to make it work together and we do anyone. I don't care if you were in my position or you were the coordinator was dealing with his venue, everyone just pulled their weight and, and you had to support each other. You know, there wasn't the, the, the systems in place that if someone was sick, you know, they just automatically something got filled in. No, you had to say, Hey, can you go over there today and cover this, you know, or I'm going to go over and do this because so-and-so isn't, you know, had to step away. You know, you had to sort of make your own support system work. Well, that's a really, really good point. We've had several people on this show, on this podcast say, no job is too small. That was a lesson that they learned, you know, that you just had to go in and do it. And I remember maybe it was Jess Christiansen. I don't, I don't <laughs> recall saying, Oh, that, you know, one day she saw Ron Cameron out there shoveling snow. Exactly. And, 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 uh, and it's like, yeah, that was the lesson. You know, I yeah. learned that yeah. everybody just has to pitch in and do whatever they can in order to pull this thing off. So I really appreciate you sharing mm -hmm. that. Any other crazy stories before we get to our final segment, Sarah? I, I try to think it's funny, you know, with, with time and distance, you know, you just remember all the good things, you know, I, and I don't, I really have a hard time remembering the bad things. I, I have no, and, and were there any, I, I, I don't know. I'm sure there was, you know, I'm sure there was, but you know, it's, it's funny how time just sort of the things that you remember, um, are definitely more on the positive side. Um, and especially from Salt Lake, I think, you know, looking back, it's, it's, uh, you know, just a unique time. It was just a unique time and, and place. And we've had, I've gone to anniversaries, you know, I've gone about every the fifth, five year, 10 year, all of that. And, you know, it's funny how you see people and immediately the people that you got on with well back then, you're, you're, you know, spent hours talking to, you know, 10 years later. So, um, you know, I really don't have any, you know, oh, the only thing I had is that I have, must say I had more club cards or whatever, you know, these, <laughs> these, you know, every bar or restaurant that you had alcohol. And I, and I have to say, I have never drunk more alcohol in my lifetime than I did in Salt Lake. And I'm not a drinker and I'm not, I wasn't a drinker in Salt Lake, but I had my whole wallet was full of this, per, this restaurant, this restaurant, this bar, this, and, you know, looking back on that, I think that was crazy. <laughs> it, it definitely was crazy. It definitely wasn't. I mean, things have changed around here since then. I know. I, I, think, know. I think the Olympic games played a part in that, you know, <laughs> in, in, in changing a little bit, the, the culture there, but uh, that's super, super interesting. <laughs> like you, I think everybody that's come onto this podcast, including myself, I had, you know, admittedly have very, very heavily tinted rose colored glasses on yeah. um, when I look back at those games, but they were a highlight of my life. And for so many people who've come on the podcast, it's been that way too. Mm -hmm. It's been largely a very positive experience, you know, for them. And so I appreciate you coming on and adding a little bit to our 
collage of memories that we've <laughs> built here over the last few months. I really do appreciate it. Now we're going to get to our final segment here. <laughs> My three questions. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> the first question is a music question. So, you know, for me, it was music that I listened to in my car when I was commuting to the office. You know, that was the music that kind of came to mind, but it could have been a performance at the ceremonies or anything else. But was there any particular song or a musical artist that if you hear them today, it reminds you of your time in Salt Lake? Well, I have to say, you know, you know, and Sting, because that was such an impression um, I think. And when I hear either one of them, it brings me back to Salt Lake in an instant. Um, and there was something special about that moment, you know, just a, a, you know, for such a huge stage to have the two of them um, was unique, I think. So I think that was my favorite moment. Um, and musically, I think that was most touching, honestly. Sting and Yo-Yo Ma. That's a great, <laughs> a great addition to our list. I've actually created a Spotify playlist. Have you really? All the songs that everybody's nominated. It's uh, all on that list. I don't know if I'll be able to find that on Spotify, but if I can't, what I will do is I will find it on YouTube somewhere and I will just put a link on my website. The only fun thing was because we put so much, um, you know, Christy Nicolay, who ran our sports production group, um, you know, she put together and I still have it. I still have it in my, in my, uh, library here is, um, the playlist for all the venues. So for the music directors in each venue. So we put together a whole, um, you know, music of the, not only music of the times, but music was appropriate, you know, from every genre, and I still have the book, actually, of all those CDs with all that music, um, you know, that we had for the game. So that's one of my prized possessions. It's great, great, great fun. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, we had Christy on, I don't know, maybe it was back in April or May. <laughs> and she was fantastic. She actually told me this story about, you know, how they created this little radio station. Yeah. For- yeah. park and people could call in and they could request songs as they yeah. were hiking up the mountain and everything. It's just fantastic, fantastic stuff. All right. Wonderful. Let's talk about food, which is absolutely <laughs> one of my favorite subjects in the world. I will not lie. I love food. Uh, was there a particular restaurant or a place, a bar that you like to hang out or frequent when you work there in Salt Lake? Well, you know, it's funny. I don't remember. I mean, we, we would go across the street from Slock to the bar on the, on this lower corner, right across the street. I can't remember the name of it. Um, and we'd meet there after work a bunch of times, but there was one place I absolutely, I mean, Salt Lake has some very unique, wonderful, um, from the blue plate, I think it was called, you know, which I used to, was on my way into work. And I loved it for breakfast. Um, and then there was a restaurant that I, on special occasions that I loved, which was up in the mountains, up, um, uh, not, not a little bit more towards, um, where I live, which was on the bench. Um, and I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but you know, you go up in through one of the canyons and it's up, it has a waterfall across from it. You probably know it well, but I, I can't remember the name of it, but, um, it was an old sort of house building and lots of wood and fireplaces and it had the, uh, uh, waterfall across the street, wonderful dinner, dinner place. I can't remember the name of it. It's so frustrating, but I loved, I mean, there was a bunch of places I loved in Salt Lake, but that was my favorite. And the blue plate was my other favorite. All right. Blue plate diner. Yeah. Great one. The one up in the Canyon. I'm trying to think of which Canyon it might be. Yeah. I'd have to look um, it up. I'm sure I could find it and I'll, I'll email it to you. <laughs> there's, a, there's like a, a silver lodge or something. That's up one of the cottonwood canyons. Yeah. It's, it's the cottonwood. It's up this, um, on the North cottonwood Canyon, not the one that's going up to, yeah, that, I think that's the one I think, uh, I think that's the one yeah. I'm thinking of. I'll look up the name. I can't remember the name exactly, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, really good. Okay. Yeah. I've got a map on my website where I pin all these places. That oh, people- I have to find it then. I'm going to find it. I'm oh. sure it's still there. I'm sure it's still there. So yeah, I, I, I will look it up. Okay. Okay. 
Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you coming on. But before we let you go, we typically end on what I call a goosebump moment. So you've already given us a lot of them. Uh, but it's one of those memories that whenever you think about it, it just makes you feel really good inside. Yeah. Do you have a goosebump moment that you can share with us? Well, I mean, I have to say my really goosebump moment was when the flag came out for the opening ceremonies, the, the silence, you know, honestly, the silence in the stadium was, was, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a, a silence of thing. It was just this sort of reverence moment of everyone coming together. It, it was, I mean, to me, that was really the goosebump moment for me for Salt Lake. Um, you know, and I'll never forget that. You know, it was one of those times in our nation's history where we all just kind of felt united in a way uh, by that shared experience. And that flag really brought it all together. And many of your colleagues that have been on this podcast have talked about that as being one of those defining moments for them. So I really appreciate you sharing that really precious moment with us. Sarah, it's been a joy to have you <laughs> on our podcast if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing with five currents or they want to just get back in touch and talk about salt lake what's the best way for them to do so well i mean i you know my email is is swiseman at fivecurrents.com so <laughs> that's probably the best way i mean i you know i'm part of a group too that's you know on facebook for salt lake and and i still stay in touch with a lot of folks um, from salt lake so it's it's i'm always always eager to keep in touch all right fantastic s wiseman at fivecurrents.com Sarah, thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. I very much enjoyed it. <laughs>